In Season 1 of Scene of the Crime, we explored the tragic 2017 double murder of Abigail Williams and Liberty German in Delphi, Indiana. Now, Season 2 is upon us, and we are digging into another double murder. But this time around, the victims and circumstances couldn't be more different. Roger Atkinson and Rose Burkert were brutally murdered in their hotel room at the Amana Holiday Inn in Williamsburg, Iowa in September of 1980, and a killer wielding a heavy-bladed weapon in room 260, most likely a hatchet, would ensure that Roger and Rose didn't leave the hotel alive. Join us starting October 14th of 2020 as we kick off Season 2 of Scene of the Crime. Search for and subscribe to Scene of the Crime right now so you don't miss a single moment. guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing really good, thanks. We're in the spooky season, my favorite time of year. Yeah, Just I mean, kidding. that sounds, <laughs> sounds like you stole my line there. <laughs> I did. There's no way of me to be like, eh, it's all right. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm channeling your spooky energy, and now I'm excited about... No, I'm not. I still can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> I tried. I mean, I'm really excited for you, if you are, in fact, excited about spooky season. You know I am. I know you are, and I wanted to match your excitement, and I'm unable to do so, so I thought I would fabricate it, and I'm also unable to do so, so (laughs) I'm excited. It's a little cooler outside. Yes, it is. I appropriately wore a cardigan outside earlier. I mean, it's still in the 70s, but it didn't seem so far off whenever I was outside. I was like, wow, this... This seems like I won't get stares if people see me in this. So yeah, it's something. Let me have this. I'll yeah. Yeah. Well, I think even even if it's really, really hot, I feel like at the end of October in Florida, it is acceptable to wear a cardigan <laughs> like no matter you, what. Because you dress it's for the season, right. not for the temperature. Yeah, we have to. Otherwise, there, when will we ever wear boots? You could never wear boots here. Exactly. You know, you never would have the opportunity. So, <laughs> so as we said, we have made it to the end of October, and that means that the holidays are just right around the corner. But first, we have Halloween this weekend, and I, for one, am very excited. I have mentioned before that I love Halloween and all the fun Halloween traditions like carving pumpkins, which I actually did today, and dressing up, and obviously eating twice my weight in candy, which I did not do today, but hopefully I will be doing on Halloween or, you know, around then. Yeah. Yeah. So this is my favorite time of year for so many reasons, and I fully embrace spooky season, as Melissa said. And with Halloween just a few days away, I thought that we would do something a little different and special this week to really get us into that Halloween spirit. Even you, Melissa, and I'm happy to see that you're already halfway there. (laughs) Again, I don't think you realize how much I'm lying, but I'm really trying. (laughs) (laughs) So on this special Halloween edition of Moms and Murder, we're going to dive into the mysterious and haunting history of the famed Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, California. We've actually already Googled Los Angeles, so this week we decided to change things up and do a special segment called 
we Googled this holiday. So Melissa, I'm so excited that you have Googled this holiday for us and I cannot wait to hear what you've come up with. Wouldn't it be funny if all I did was Google terrible facts, just like trying to really drive the point home that I'm not a big fan. But no, I actually looked up some fun stuff and not your normal fun stuff. So hopefully it's not terrible, but here goes nothing and I can't emphasize the nothing enough. So Mandy, the 1978 horror film Halloween had a teeny tiny little budget. Obviously they did not think it was going to become a huge thing, but the most iconic thing from the movie is the psychotic Mike Myers mask. So when they're filming this movie, they have very little money to work with and they decided they needed this mask and they knew they wanted it to be this white mask, but what are they going to do? They can't really have this costume designer make it. They really, truly don't have any money. So they spent $2 on a Star Trek Captain James Kirk mask that they painted white and kind of widened the eyes on. What? That was kind of interesting. Yeah. Wait. Okay. I should. I. Sh- you're very good at your sources and stuff, but I only found this on one place, and I didn't bother to Google it anymore. <laughs> but I think that's such. A, if that's true, it's probably kind of true. Right? Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So yeah. So if you want to, if you're on a budget this year, you could be Mike Myers for two dollars. No, you could be Captain Kirk this year, and for two dollars and some spray paint next year, you could lose some brain cells and become. Mike Myers. That's totally a normal thing to do, right? So Mandy, did you know that this actually ticks me off? Did you know that pumpkins are considered a fruit and not a vegetable? Oh, actually, it kind of makes sense because of pumpkin pie. But did you know that? Um, I pondered that actually (laughs) while I was carving pumpkins and I definitely thought it was a fruit because I don't really know why I didn't. Right? Yeah, I guess. I didn't really have a reason. But then also it's like a squash. So then I thought it was a vegetable. Thank you for bringing the squash part up because I forgot why I would have ever even considered that it would have not been a fruit. So back in 2006, New Hampshire, so pumpkins are the big Halloween thing, but New Hampshire even decided to make their state fruit the pumpkin, which again, irritates me because most states don't even have like fruits. It's like you just go through like Alabama and then like down to New Hampshire. That's the next one that has one. Of course, Florida, we have oranges, but then- Ohio wanted to get in on the game and they have the tomato again just trying to piss me off because it's taken my entire adult life to accept that a tomato is a fruit which still given that side eye (laughs) but now they're saying pumpkin is fruit I don't know I just went through a lot and I didn't even read half the stuff I wrote down because that's like how much it's bothered me today (laughs) last fact that means nothing to anyone Mandy we would agree well I would agree with myself maybe you'll agree the best part of Halloween is the candy I think Maybe spooky for you, but I'm (laughs) on team candy. And one of the most popular candies, I'm not entirely sure if that's true, but at least for the sake of this argument, is the Milk Dud. And the creator of the Milk Duds was actually, whenever he was making his candy, was trying to make a circular chocolate, like a perfectly circular one, and it kept failing. And thus, he decided to call it a dud. And then because it had a lot of milk in it, they decided to name it the Milk Dud. Oh, so yeah, again, one Google don't know that it's 100% true. <laughs> but <laughs> Mandy, you got me thinking, what about other things that we've had in life that were duds that we could have just added the word dud to what what would that look like? So number five is I have a five point list. Number five is the last minute of every Saturday Night Live sketch duds. Those are always <laughs> rough when they try to get it done. I'm like, let's just cancel this part. Um, Mandy, I don't know if you're familiar with the show, but episodes four through eight of the show, The Vow, the documentary series, duds. It's on the Nexium cult on HBO. And oh, no. 
they could have shortened it to like two and a half episodes. I'm not kidding. <laughs> they recorded everything with this cult leader and like they were like, well, we're going to show every freaking minute of the past 20 years. It's oh, too no. much. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a joke for three people out there. Uh, number three, the time I voted every day. Tell me if you remember this for the purple M&M for like an M&M contest and they chose <laughs> to make the blue instead and it ruined my faith in humanity at a very young age, duds. Do you remember the M M&M and M votes? Were you too young for the M M&M and M votes? It was nineteen ninety five. I don't. Oh no no no! I don't. No, I don't remember anything that happened in nineteen ninety five. I okay. mean, some things, but not not voting for the new color of M and M's. There was like an eight hundred number, and it was pink, purple, and blue. And I every day voted for the purple M M&M, and M, and I truly believed it was going to happen. And if you look in a freaking M M&M and M bag right now, you will not find a purple. They picked blue, and I've never really recovered from that <laughs> terrible <laughs> fact. All right, I'm almost done. Number two, the fact that they are rebooting the show Dexter, even though it ended in the worst finale of all times, dud. How bad was that finale? Did you ever see the finale? Oh, yeah, it was terrible. Dexter, terrible. And they're rebooting the whole show. I didn't Why know are they that. Doing that. I just learned that for the first yeah, time. Yeah, duds. Duds. I know that one's true. I've seen it at least two places. And right. lastly, <laughs> the number one dud that we've all had is all of us screaming Happy New Year on January 1st. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I really hope that that is not the case when we do it again soon. No, I won't months. even I will not even speak the words next year. I'm just going to say everyone have an acceptable year. That's going to be my mantra. That's right. It. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the Cecil Hotel. If you are a true crime fan or even just a conspiracy, mystery, and horror fan, you have probably heard of this famous hotel and its perplexing and rather creepy past. It's the classic old haunted hotel story, except that it's not just an urban legend. There really has been quite an alarming amount of death and violence associated with this place. If you're an American Horror Story fan like me, then you may know that season five, which is titled Hotel, and it stars Lady Gaga. Actually, I loved her in that role. I don't know if you ever, you didn't watch American Horror Story. You would never. Oh, yeah, I definitely. It was just like every week I was like a total Gaga head watching it. No, I was a little monster. (laughs) No, but I heard she's great in it. And she um, is. Yes, I'll give you that. Yeah, she is. I'm not really like a huge Lady Gaga fan otherwise. I mean, I like she's You're going to upset the monsters. I know. (laughs) Yeah, she's all right. But I loved her in that season of American Horror Story, though. She did a really good job in her role. So that season was actually inspired by the real life events that took place over decades at the Cecil Hotel. The real hotel, which is located at 640 South Main Street in downtown L.A., is full of stories of mysterious deaths and murders and even housed two serial killers at one point, which we will get into more in just a bit. First, we're going to take it all the way back to the beginning to 1924 when hotel owner William Banks Hanner commissioned the construction of the Cecil Hotel. When I started researching for this episode, I thought, man, I can't even imagine what life was like in 1924 because it seems like such a long time ago. And then I realized that it really was a long time ago. It was almost 100 (laughs) years ago. So that is why it probably seems like a whole different world. The human experience certainly wasn't the same back then as it is now, and life was a whole lot different. The 20s are one period in history that I personally love learning more about. I am totally here for the jazz era, the flappers, and the development of many technologies that we have improved on and still use today. 
it's honestly so foreign and strange to think about life before things like smartphones, but those really weren't invented that long ago. The first Android phone was released in 2008, which means that both of my kids were born after smartphones became a thing, and they have no idea what life is like without that type of technology, which I think about all the time. You probably do having kids that are similar ages. Right. Like, it always comes up where I'm like, wow, you guys really don't know, like, what we used to do without. Yeah, and I I barely remember what we did without, you know, this kind of technology that we have today. Back in the 1920s, though, not only did they not have smartphones, but they barely even had radios. And when radio broadcasting did hit the world, people really went just crazy over it. It was really cheap entertainment and everybody wanted a radio in their home. And by the mid 1930s, most households did have one. So it's weird to think of life pre-phones, pre-TV, and pre-radio. And I just always wonder, like, what did people really do all day? Up until this point, most people were busy doing things necessary for survival. So farming, of course, was a big thing that everybody did because they had to. And that's just how you lived life back then. It's what a lot of people call the good old days. The 1920s were huge for the advancement of women as well. They started to become more liberated. And in the summer of 1920, they were finally granted the right to vote. It was during this time that many women chose to go to work outside the home and earn a wage of their own, and birth control became more widely available, which made it easier for women to plan their families. This decade is commonly referred to as the Roaring Twenties, and there are a lot of really good reasons for that. Technological progress allowed for the mass production of goods, the auto and airline industry as we know it was formed, employment was on the rise, and most households were bringing in enough money to buy luxury items in addition to actual necessities. By 1929, there was one car on the road for every five Americans, which meant that things like gas stations became a necessity, providing even more jobs for people, and things like hotels and motels became a big business with more and more people driving and traveling. The combination of these events allowed the economy to become a consumer economy, and it really soared in the 20s. But not everything that happened in the 20s was positive and rosy. This was also the era of prohibition, which went into effect in the early 1920s and prohibited the manufacture, sale, and transportation of alcoholic beverages in the United States. Lawmakers evidently felt that if not for the consumption of alcohol, there would be less crime, corruption, social problems, and less people in prisons and poorhouses, which created a tax burden. In an effort to curb these issues and improve health in America, the sale of liquor was outlawed for the first and only time in history but it backfired in a huge way, and prohibition gave rise to some rather seedy criminal activity. People started making their own booze and bathtubs and selling it to others, and what they called speakeasies were born. These were places you could go to illegally consume alcohol. These things were taken advantage of by organized crime groups and led to what we know as the period of gangsterism, which is an actual term used by Britannica, and some of the most notorious gangsters and mobsters were active during the 20s, including Al Capone, Bonnie and Clyde, and John Dillinger. Although the Cecil Hotel wasn't built for illegal or strange activity, the time period and location that it was built in definitely paved the way for it to become just that, another seedy hotel in downtown L.A., but that's not at all what William Banks Hanner had in mind whenever he commissioned the hotel in 1924. William invested about a million dollars or over $13 million today into his plan to build an extravagant and luxurious hotel in L.A. He wanted this to be one really fancy place to rest your head while visiting the city, and his vision for the hotel was that it would be a beautiful and luxurious 700-room five-star hotel complete with a marble lobby, 
a big lavish staircase and gorgeous stained glass windows right in the heart of a booming downtown area. William was no stranger to the hotel business, and at the time, it really was a great business to be in, as we said. It was a brand new, fast-growing industry, so William wanted his hotel to be all the rage and to attract the finest clientele. And at first, that's exactly what it did. The hotel finally opened in 1927, and it was every bit as glamorous as William had envisioned. It was absolutely gorgeous, and the extravagant marble lobby instantly made you feel like you were really in the lap of luxury. But one thing William hadn't anticipated, and neither had anyone else for that matter, was that things were about to change in a big way for the world just two years later. All throughout the 1920s, Americans enjoyed a fruitful lifestyle. Unemployment was only 3.7%, and the total wealth in the U.S. doubled. Individuals began investing in the stock market, and the economy was at a peak. But in 1929, it all came crashing down, and the Roaring Twenties came to an abrupt end. Due to the ease of obtaining credit while the economy was doing well, consumers began to go into debt, and the companies themselves had overextended themselves. Stock exchanging wasn't well regulated and pretty much equated to just gambling. Shares in a company were selling for far more than was justifiable, and many investors realized that this was unsustainable, so they started taking profits in the fall of 1929, and the price of shares started to drop. The first crash was on Thursday, October 24th, and the market did survive the weekend, but by the following Monday, prices tanked again and investors started unloading millions of shares. There were absolutely no buyers, and the entire system crumbled. This is known as one of the events that immediately preceded what we know as the Great Depression, and this was obviously very, very bad news for William Hanner and his shiny new luxury hotel. And we're going to get right back into the story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We are so excited to share with you guys about FrameBridge. FrameBridge makes it easier and more affordable than ever to frame your favorite things without ever leaving the house. You can do anything, like create the perfect gallery wall for your home office or send the perfect gift to a loved one. FrameBridge can do just about anything from art prints to diplomas and even those photos on your phone you've been meaning to print out for months. Here's how it works. Head over to FrameBridge.com and upload your photo. Easy peasy. Or if you'd rather, they'll send you packaging to safely mail in your physical pieces. You can preview your item online in dozens of frame styles and gallery wall layouts. From there, choose your favorite, or you can even get free recommendations from their talented designers. The experts at FrameBridge will then custom frame your item and deliver the finished product directly to your door and ready to hang. With framing stores, you could spend hundreds of dollars, but with FrameBridge, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, because you're a Moms and Murder listener, you'll even get 15% off your first order at framebridge.com when you use our code MOMS. There's nothing like capturing a moment in time, especially when that moment is both your kids smiling at the camera at the same time. So I took my favorite photo of my kids and had it framed by FrameBridge in the gray ash gallery frame that has a beautiful and warm gray finish, and it just makes such a great focal point in our room. It was so simple to work with FrameBridge. I was able to upload my photo and was on my way to ordering right away. I can't wait to frame my kids coming home newborn outfits because while I may be cold hearted, I can be aggressively nostalgic. Get started today. Frame your photos or send someone the perfect gift. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code moms to save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com promo code moms framebridge.com promo code moms. 
Finding a new bra is no one's favorite activity, but finding a great bra was nearly impossible until now, thanks to Third Love. Third Love will help you find your new favorite bra that's made of high quality and has tons of comfy styles that start at just $45. What I really love about Third Love is that you can take a Fit Finder quiz to help you find your bra size without having to just take a stab in the dark like I had done for years. It turns out that over your lifetime, your body changes. Crazy, right? Third Love makes it easy to find the size you wear now, not the size from your senior prom, by offering a Fit Finder quiz that both Mandy and I have taken. The quiz was simple and just asked me a few questions about the bra I currently wear, and within about 60 seconds, boom, bada bing, the Third Love fairies quickly told me what size and styles would work for my body. It's like magic. But Third Love isn't just any old bra. Thanks to their signature details like memory foam cups, a scratch-free band, plus my personal favorite, their no-slip straps. Third Love has made amazing bras because they focus on what you, the customer, wants. Comfort without any shortcuts or substitutions. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering our listeners 10% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash murder now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 10% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash murder for 10% off today. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about the Roaring Twenties and what was happening right before the Great Depression and the Cecil Hotel that was being built and how that was going to impact the building and the success of this hotel. And so the area that the Cecil Hotel was built in had once been really booming and lively, but it quickly became a pretty sketchy part of town. If you've ever heard the term used Skid Row, that's actually where Cecil is located. Skid Row is an area of downtown LA that came to be known as an area where the poor, homeless, and drug-addicted congregated in the city. Today, the area is still known as Skid Row, and it still carries the same reputation. There are estimated to be around 4,000 out of the 40,000 total homeless people in LA living on Skid Row. But it was really not that way until the Great Depression hit at this time of our story. When the Cecil first opened its doors, everything was really going right as planned. It quickly became a very popular hotel for middle-class visitors to the area, and there were several Los Angeles residents that made Cecil their long-term home. I always find it interesting when people make a hotel their home. Like, that's... Yeah. It happened on Real Housewives of New York. Tinsley did it, but I'm always like, oh, I didn't... I, I just didn't realize that was a, a thing. And it, like in really nice hotels, people will do that. So, although you do get room service, so I can definitely see the benefits right. of doing that. <laughs> But in the years immediately following the grand opening of this hotel, things started to take a turn. And as we said, due to the declining economy and the start of the Great Depression, the Cecil started to see more of a transient population and began to see some unsavory and sometimes unexplainable events within the first year it was open. So I honestly did not know anything really about this hotel. I'd heard of it, but that's literally as far as my my knowledge of it went. So I was very fascinated and terrified as I went through this, just all the things that happened at this one place, which we're going to get into. So in 1927, this hotel saw one of its first moments of drama when a Slavonian tourist was chased by police back to his room at the Cecil after he'd stolen a diamond hairpin from another nearby hotel. In 1929, a 33-year-old woman named Dorothy Robertson was found acting strangely in the hotel. She wandered around the property aimlessly for three days, evidently distraught over the death of her husband. In the wake of his death, she had been prescribed barbiturates to help with her anxiety and her grief, and after spending several days at the Cecil, she attempted to overdose on her medication, but she was thankfully unsuccessful. 
Other interesting occurrences in 1929 include the story of George Ford, who lived in the Cecil and apparently had a $10,000 stash of morphine and opium in his room. And in 1929, imagine how much. I feel like that's how the much, whole room, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it had to be just stacked like wall to wall. That's crazy. Yeah. So he was arrested nearby the hotel, but he was far from being the only person to use the hotel as a home base for heavy drug dealing. In another bizarre instance, an older man at the Cecil was found near death after he drank poison that had already killed three other men. But all of this was merely just the beginning of what would become a dark story about a very, very strange hotel. So the really macabre stuff that's associated with the Cecil didn't start until 1931 when the first of numerous suicides took place on the premises. A visitor from New York named W.K. Norton took encapsulated poison to end his own life after using a fake name to check into the hotel. Sadly, there were five more suicides at the Cecil Hotel from 1931 to 1939. During this decade, the clientele that came in and out of the Cecil was kind of a mixed bag. It hadn't completely plummeted yet, but there weren't as many wealthy or well-to-do guests as there were in the very early days. But the horrors that plagued the hotel continued. In one case, a woman named Grace Margot either fell or jumped from the window on the ninth floor and became tangled in the telephone wires below. She later died at a hospital, and investigators were never able to determine whether she jumped, fell, or was pushed from the window. In January of 1938, another suicide victim was found after he jumped from the top floor. He had been living at the Cecil for several weeks prior to his death. Two of the suicide victims in the 1930s were found dead in their rooms of intentional poisoning. One suffered a self-inflicted gunshot wound and one slashed his own throat with a razor and left a note stating that his poor health was the reason he chose to end his life. Things really did not get any better in the 1940s for the Cecil Hotel either. There were more suicides by poisoning and more jumping deaths, but it was also in the 1940s that an infamous gruesome murder was discovered in Los Angeles. The body of actress Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, was discovered by a woman and her son while they were walking the streets of L.A. We won't go into too many details about this crime because it's already very well known, but if you have never heard of the Black Dahlia story or you need a quick refresher, this was an iconic case that took place in the 1940s. Elizabeth's body was found dismembered and drained of blood, and her mouth was cut at the corners into the shape of a smile. And at the time of the discovery of her remains, her identity was unknown, so she was dubbed the Black Dahlia. She was, however, quickly identified through fingerprints. When I say quickly, I mean quickly for the time. They had to send it. They did it. You know, they had to send it off, and then they got right. the results back. Her murder was so gruesome that it became a media sensation and has since been one of the most notorious and well-known true crime cases in history. Well, legend has it that Elizabeth Short was actually seen several times at the cocktail lounge at the Cecil Hotel in the weeks leading up to her death. To this day, it remains a mystery who killed Elizabeth Short. And that is just the first major crime story to have ties to this hotel. Over the next several years, many other tragedies occurred at or were associated with the Cecil Hotel and its residents. A lot of the tragedies were death by suicide, but there were also a number of what some might call freak accidents. For example, one resident of the hotel, an elderly woman, was found dead in the ocean of an apparent drowning. And in another instance, a truck driver was struck by a large truck and pinned against the side of the Cecil Hotel, killing him instantly. One of the most bizarre freak accident type deaths that happened at the Cecil was actually two deaths in one. 
1962, a woman named Pauline Otten jumped to her death from her window just as an elderly man was walking along the sidewalk below. She landed on this man, killing them both instantly. When police arrived at the scene, they really couldn't figure out even what had happened. They observed the body of a young woman on top of the body of an older man, and at first it was believed to be a double murder, possibly due to an affair that the man may have been having with the young woman. But that theory didn't really stack up or make much sense, and eventually they concluded that the young woman had to have somehow jumped at just the right time, causing her to land on the man who she had no prior connection to at all. That is terrible. Just crazy and definitely like what you would call a freak accident. Yeah, like definition, textbook freak accident. Yeah. So the shocking death of Goldie Osgood, also known as Pigeon, is also an infamous story from the Cecil Hotel. Goldie was an older woman who had retired from her job as a telephone operator, and she spent her time feeding the pigeons in a nearby downtown square while calling Cecil her home. She was very well known around town and among the residents at the hotel, and all who knew her said she was really the kindest woman. But in 1964, she became the victim of a gruesome murder. Her body was found inside her room at the Cecil. She had been raped, stabbed, and strangled to death. Her murder was never solved. There were truly too many suicides and violent deaths at the Cecil from the time it opened to the 70s, so many that it wouldn't make much sense to sit here and list them all off. Many of the deaths by suicide at the hotel were people who had checked in with a fake name, and in some cases, police were never even able to trace back their real identities, so little is known about them or what led them to the Cecil or what led them to suicide. We don't mean to gloss over any of these tragedies that happened in the hotel, but there's just a lot more information out there about some of them compared to others. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the history and numerous deaths that are known to have occurred at the Cecil, but we still haven't talked about some of the most famous crimes and criminals. We're going to fast forward a little on our timeline and jump into what happened at the Cecil in the 80s. And oh my gosh, I had no idea. All right. So everybody listening to this show has an interest in true crime stories. And if you have been a crime buff for a while, then there are certain names and cases that probably stick out in your mind or ones that you may know a lot about. For many people, the story of Richard Ramirez is one that they've become familiar with, or at least the name. Richard is best known by his moniker, the Night Stalker, and he truly was the scariest thing in L.A. from April of 1984 to August of 1985. If monsters are real, they are the Richard Ramirez's of the world. Because this is a crime story that has been done over and over again, ad nauseum really. We aren't going to deep dive it like we would with a normal case, but because of the fact that the Night Stalker of L.A. is associated with the Cecil Hotel, we are going to talk a little about who he was and what his crime spree consisted of. So Richard Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas on February 29th, 1960. He was the youngest of five children born to Mexican immigrant parents named Julian and Mercedes. While Richard's mother was pregnant with him, she worked at a boot factory, which exposed her to highly concentrated chemical fumes. As a result, Richard, along with all of his siblings, were born with various birth defects from respiratory problems to bone deformities. Life was stressful in the Ramirez household, and Julian was abusive towards his wife and all the kids. When Richard was a very young toddler, just two years old, he had a big heavy dresser tip over and fall on his head, which caused a large laceration and he had like a severe head injury. A few years later, when he was five, he suffered another blow and was knocked unconscious by a swing. Following this accident, Richard began having epileptic seizures. 
At the impressionable age of just 13, a cousin of Richard's who had fought in the Vietnam War showed him some graphic and disturbing images of Vietnamese women that he allegedly had raped, tortured, and killed. Seeing these images and hearing the stories triggered something in Richard's brain, and he started seeking out more instances of violence and death and seemed to get some kind of pleasure from it. Richard eventually started using drugs and became a heavily addicted user. He also developed an interest in Satanism, which is something that he really got into and became a really big factor in investigating his crimes later. Experts said that he was a narcissist that loved attention and being sort of an enigma that people were afraid of. When Richard started down this path of drug use and satanic worship, he began committing petty crimes and started becoming more and more estranged from his family. Richard's very first experience with murder was actually not a murder that he committed himself. The same cousin that had previously shown him these violent images as a child and later introduced him to drugs ended up murdering his own wife in the 1970s. And Richard was actually present for that murder and was close enough that the victim's blood actually got on him. But he did nothing to stop the killing, even though he was right there and he was that close. In 1977, he was sent to a juvenile detention center, and in 1982, he was given probation after being caught in possession of marijuana. It was after serving his probation that he moved to California and began his crime spree there. He committed numerous burglaries and thefts and continued using drugs, and by this time, he had moved on to something a little heavier. He started using cocaine. By 1984, Richard was no stranger to a life of crime. He was 24 years old at this time, and things were about to take a very dark turn. On June 28, 1984, Richard committed his first murder. He broke into the home of his 79-year-old victim, sexually assaulted her, and stabbed her to death in her own home. This was an MO that he would keep using for at least a dozen or more murders, but he waited eight months before killing again. After that, the killings came very quickly, one after another. In the spring of 1985, he struck again twice in the same night, within the same hour even. He first attacked a 22-year-old woman outside of her home, and when he was confronted by a male resident, he shot the man dead instantly, but the young woman actually survived the attack. Less than an hour later on the same night, Richard pulled a 30-year-old woman from her own vehicle and shot her to death in a completely random act of violence. He then fled the scene, leaving no real clues behind. Of course, when two murders happen back-to-back on the same day and in the same area, the media picks up on the story and runs with it, and that's exactly what happened in this case. Before being called the Night Stalker, Richard was dubbed the Walking Killer and the Valley Intruder, which the Valley Intruder sounds way too nice. That just sounds like you bumped into somebody, not like (laughs) you're violently killing somebody. Over the next year, Richard never went very long before finding his next victim, and for the majority of his murder spree, he was living in, you guessed it, say it with us, the Cecil Hotel. Okay, just me. He had a room (laughs) on the top floor that he paid $14 a night for that served as a home base when he wasn't out prowling the neighborhood looking for someone to kill. There were occasionally victims who had been attacked by Richard but managed to escape or survive, and they were able to give the police a description of him. Richard was described to police as being Hispanic with long, curly hair, bulging eyes, and terrible teeth. Victims of his attacks said that Richard had the worst bad breath they'd ever smelt. Generally, when it comes to serial killers, they have a type, so to speak, but in the case of Richard Ramirez, there really was no type. 
Noam was safe from potential harm brought on by Richard because he appeared to have absolutely no rhyme or reason for choosing his victims. It was all over the place. They were all ages, genders, and backgrounds, and seemed to be chosen completely at random, which isn't something you see a lot with serial killers. So Richard fell into the thrill killer typology of serial killers, and it was all about the excitement and adventure for him. He had no idea what he would encounter whenever he broke into someone's house, and often he just made up a plan on the spot once he got inside. Richard would often attack and murder two people at once, usually a couple that was home together at the time he invaded their house. His method of killing wasn't even always the same. Sometimes he would use a knife, sometimes a gun, and sometimes, but not always, there would be a sexual assault. Each murder and crime scene was rather disorganized, which meant there was really no pattern. The pattern was actually the disorganization and the randomness. There were satanic symbols found at several of the crime scenes. After each of these killings, Richard would return to his home at the Cecil Hotel, oftentimes covered in blood and visibly looking like a very scary person. But the residents at the hotel came to accept and ignore it when they saw Richard walking around the hotel looking like he just killed someone. What is the oh other my reason? Gosh. <laughs> I just can't. Can you imagine like even seeing a person looking like that? But yeah, they just they saw it often enough that they were like, oh, there's that guy again just coming back from whatever it was that he was doing. I mean, I guess, yeah, you wouldn't like approach him or ask him, why are you covered in blood? <laughs> but like, I guess you could. I don't even know there. Uh, what do you confuse it with? Well, beet farming. There's an episode of The Office where Dwight's covered in what looks like blood, but it's actually he's a beet farmer. But really, like, what do you have to say to yourself to be like, yeah, that guy's covered in blood. Just don't get on the elevator with him. What? That's a that's a lot. I I had no idea people saw him and like was like "Mm, something's going on with that guy. But it's all right. Let's go to sleep. (laughs) Lock your door. Yeah. So. In fact, numerous people later reported that they had seen Richard behind the Cecil discarding bloody clothes and other items into the dumpster. So after committing at least 13 murders, investigators finally managed to discover a fingerprint, which led them to revealing Richard's identification. In late August of 1985, police released his name and photograph to the public. At this point, residents of L.A. and surrounding areas were already on high alert, and they were fearful about where the Night Stalker would strike next, and gun sales in the area had actually gone up since, you know, this news broke that there's a serial killer out on the loose in the city. So the residents of the area were definitely on the lookout and had their eyes peeled once they had a face and a name. The very next day after police had released the photo, a man spotted Richard in East L.A. and called police. Richard tried to evade arrest by stealing a car, but he was ambushed by a surrounding crowd who nearly beat him to death before police arrived. As we mentioned before, Richard was a complete narcissist. So after his arrest, he really put on a show for the police and for the media. He would draw pentagrams on his palms and use his fingers to make devil's horns. And he would just say these bizarre things with really just to taunt people. He acted like he was a complete movie star in the courtroom. There were numerous legal witnesses available in this case, and when Richard finally went to trial four years after his arrest, numerous women who had survived the attacks by him were actually in the courtroom. Finding a jury was kind of difficult in this case, and they interviewed more than 1,600 potential jurors to be sure that the jury was impartial about Richard. Yeah, it reminded me a lot 
I mean, not really a lot except for this like one little fact, but that's how it was. Remember when they were looking for a jury for the Casey Anthony case, they had to like interview a ton and go out of the area of Orlando because it was all over the news and there's just no way to find an impartial jury whenever they've had all of this inundation about this case already, you know, that they've seen it all on the news. So that was kind of what it was like in this case. Over the years leading up to Richard's trial, he actually gained a type of cult-like fan following, most of which were fellow satanic worshipers. While he was in prison waiting his trial, he made numerous off-the-wall comments to other inmates. He really was just an evil, evil person, and he told anybody who would listen how much he really enjoyed killing and he loved killing his victims. In a really odd coincidence, one of the jurors that had been selected was actually murdered in August of 1989, which delayed Richard's trial even more. They had some theories that Richard had something to do with having her killed, but they never were able to prove that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. But eventually the trial did get underway. The state was seeking the death penalty as punishment for the countless and heinous crimes that Richard committed. He didn't even really try to win any points with the jury. He was very arrogant and pompous as he really had always been. And he just went in there and made these creepy gestures towards the jury and really just freaked them out. So as interesting as this case actually was, I mean, this would be a really interesting jury to sit on. I feel like it would be kind of scary. Like be terrifying if he's making faces at you. Right. Like to even be in the court with this person would be kind of scary, but it's an interesting case and there's a lot going on. Right. But I just, one of the facts I found while I was researching was that one of the jurors ended up getting fired from the case because she was caught sleeping, I guess, <laughs> during oh the gosh. trial. And so she was replaced with an alternate juror before deliberations. But oh my gosh, can you imagine? I feel like that would be so embarrassing to get caught sleeping like on as a juror like yeah. in court. Although I wonder if she did it on purpose because I'd want to be dismissed. I'd be like, give me the rule book. What are the ways I can get out? I like want to be on a jury. I would love to. I would love to serve my civil duty. But this jury with him, maybe somebody right. got murdered because <laughs> of him. I'd be like, what else do I need to do? What what do I need to do? Do I can I punch myself in the face? What's gonna get me out of here? Sleeping? Sure. Got it. I'm on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Finally, on September 20th, 1989, the jury reached a decision. They found Richard guilty on all counts and recommended a sentence of death. When he heard the verdict, Richard said to the court, quote, I need not look beyond this room to see all the liars, haters, the killers, the crooks, the paranoid cowards, truly trematodes of the earth. Is that even a word? I was wondering how you were even going to say that word. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He told them all they made him sick, and he said that he was beyond their experience. He was beyond good and evil. So that was his quote that he gave to the court. So he just, that was just some of his antics. That's how he, yeah, that's how he was. So as far as his thoughts on receiving the death penalty, he said, quote, big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. And Disneyland stock (laughs) dropped 3,000 points that day. (laughs) (laughs) So after he was convicted of the 13 known murders, he was later connected to several other murders where his DNA was found at the scene. It's unknown how many murders Richard is truly responsible for, but he is one of the most well-known serial killers in American history, and he lived at the Cecil Hotel for the majority of his murder spree. He actually ended up marrying one of his female fans or pen pals from behind bars in 1996, which I never understand that. I feel like all of them have those 
you know, like oh, all yeah. those serial killers. And it's just crazy. They have this huge following and like women want to be pen pals with them and, and like marry them, which I think is. It's interesting. I don't know. I watch it a is, lot of TV it's shows. Interesting. About this. It's very interesting. It is interesting. Richard attempted to appeal his conviction, but it was denied and he remained on death row. But death ended up coming for Richard sooner than his planned execution. In 2013, news broke that Richard Ramirez had died due to complications from B-cell lymphoma. He was 53 years old and had already spent 24 years on death row before he died of natural causes. The story of Richard Ramirez and the lives he took is still one of the most terrifying cases of serial killing, but he wasn't the only serial killer in the 80s who called the Cecil Hotel home. How, Mandy? And how? <laughs> I don't know. It's this hotel. It's the hotel. And we're going to get right back into the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I am normally not a big mail person because I'm an adult, so it's typically bills or dental reminder cards, but the second I get the notification that my FabFitFun box is on the way, I'm waiting for the mail like a kid waiting for Christmas morning because FabFitFun is the way to treat yourself in 2020. And the winter box is amazing. There are treats for everyone, like my new favorite thing, my summer in rose cozy robe, which is luxuriously plush and even has every girl's best friend, front pockets, plus it has a hood, and it really feels like you're just being hugged by a cloud. It's so comfortable. I wear it all the time. And I literally mean all the time. I am wearing it right now as we record. You know how sometimes you're nervous to recommend something to a friend in case they don't like it? Well, that's not the case with FabFitFun because it always has tons of things you and your friends will love. Like I chose the Mobile White Advanced Teeth Whitening Kit. The whitening gel and LED light tray system gives you a brighter, whiter smile with mobility by just plugging into your handheld device. I've used my kit every day for the last five days and have already seen a difference in the whiteness of my teeth, and it's so convenient to use while doing other things. I just pop it in while I'm researching for the podcast or watching a TV show, and the 20-minute cycle goes by in a flash. The best part is you don't have to go store to store searching for all these fun and high-quality products to treat yourself this season. Let FabFitFun treat you, plus get tons of amazing seasonal must-haves all without ever leaving the house. Pre-order your winter box today. Sign up now so you can snag amazing products like the Summer and Rose Cozy Robe or the Mobile White Advanced Teeth Whitening Kit when you customize. Use coupon code MOMS for $10 off your first box at fabfitfun.com. Again, pre-order your winter box today. Sign up now so you can snag amazing products like the Summer and Rose Cozy Robe or the Mobile White Advanced Teeth Whitening Kit when you customize. Use coupon code MOMS for $10 off your first box at fabfitfun.com. You've heard the phrase, dance like no one's watching, but if you're like me, you think the phrase should actually be pull and tug on your shirt while no one's watching, since I'm doing that far more often than I'm out dancing. Luckily, Shaper Mint can help you get back to the dancing and away from all that pulling and tugging thanks to their amazing shapewear that not only smooths you out, but makes you feel comfortable. And when you feel comfortable, you feel confident and empowered. If you've been on the fence about shapewear, you really should check out Shaper Mint. Shaper Mint is shapewear that's actually super affordable. I've searched the internet before for shapewear and some of the prices are jaw-dropping, but Shaper Mint is half the price of those other guys because they wanted to make their shapewear affordable and they have, while still being high quality and incredibly comfortable. I now have a pair of the Impetua All Day Everyday High-Waisted Shaper Shorts that I can wear under literally anything. I actually wore it the other day under one of my favorite shirts that 
much like a contestant on The Bachelor, can be a little clingy. But with the Impetua all-day, everyday high-waisted shaper, I spent none of my time pulling on the shirt to keep it from clinging to my body, and I danced around the room. I'm lying about that last part. I did absolutely no dancing, but I could have if I wanted to because I had no cares in the world thanks to Shaper Mint. You can get up to 60 to 70% off shapewear with Shaper Mint's ongoing discounts, plus an extra 10% off your order just for being a listener of our show. But you must go to shapermint.com slash moms and use our code moms. That's S-H-A-P-E-R-M-I-N-T dot com slash moms. Code moms to get our exclusive listener at a discount of an extra 10% off your order. Shapermint.com slash moms code moms. Now back to the episode. Before the break, we just wrapped up our little rundown of Richard Ramirez and what he had to do with the Cecil Hotel. What some people might not know is that there was actually another serial killer around the same time that also stayed at the Cecil. His name was Jack Unterweger, and he was originally from Austria. Jack grew up poor with his grandfather in a one-room shack. His grandfather was an alcoholic and physically abused Jack as a child. Before Jack was even an adult, he was already committing violent crimes. He spent time in prison as a youth for assaulting sex workers, and in 1974, he strangled one woman to death with her own bra. He was sentenced to life in prison for that crime, but somehow he managed to win over the public and the courts over a 14-year period in prison. He spent that time writing poems and stories and an autobiography, and he hailed himself as the rehabilitated killer, which is a nice thing to call yourself, uh, not that somebody else is calling you. So some very wealthy and powerful Austrians ended up petitioning for his release, and Jack was paroled in 1990. He became an overnight celebrity and appeared on talk shows and got invited to all the hottest cocktail parties. He was really living it up, but it was all a lie. He had quickly returned to murdering sex workers, and within the first year of his release, at least six women had been murdered by him. And then he left Austria for Los Angeles, under the guise of being a journalist working on a story about crime in L.A. Once he was in the city, he firmly rooted himself and cozied up to the local police, and he even went on ride-alongs for research purposes. While staying in L.A. and quote-unquote working on a story, Jack lived in the Cecil. He focused his pretend stories mostly on sex workers in Los Angeles, and on his ride-alongs, he would even get to meet some of them and talk to them, ask them questions like he was conducting an interview. These women would soon become his victims. During his time staying at the Cecil Hotel, Jack murdered three sex workers, and all three were beaten to death and strangled with their own bras, just as Jack had done to his very first victim back in Austria. Eventually, Interpol officials noticed that the M.O. in the Los Angeles killings matched that of Jack Unterweger, and they began looking for him. He led officers on a worldwide manhunt through Switzerland, France, Canada, and the United States. His credit card transactions are what finally led the investigators to his location. It was actually bounty hunters who made the connection and realized that Jack was in Miami. He was taken back to Austria and indicted on 11 more murder charges, but he didn't face trial for two years. He was found guilty on nine of the murder counts, and the judge sentenced him to life in prison once again, but this time he was placed in a maximum security prison. The very next day, on June 29, 1994, Jack hung himself from a curtain rod in his jail cell with a drawstring from his sweatpants. 
Apparently, there were several audio tapes in his cell when he died, but officials have never released the contents of those tapes to the public. As the 90s and early 2000s continued, there were more strange deaths and crime associated with the Cecil Hotel. In 1995, a murder suspect named Eric Reed escaped from jail and was later found at the Cecil Hotel, and there were more deaths by suicide. By the mid-2000s, downtown L.A. was changing and becoming more gentrified as wealthier people started purchasing property and moving in and displacing the impoverished that had settled in the area. In 2007, a group purchased the Cecil Hotel for $26 million and started the rebranding of the hotel. They used part of it to create a new experience, which they called The Stay, which was a budget boutique hotel for hip middle-class tourists. Despite the efforts, the hotel continued to have even more strange and unusual events. In 2011, the hotel underwent a complete rebranding, and the name was changed to Stay on Main Hotel and Hostel. The rooms were around $75 a night, which made it a nice budget-friendly option for tourists visiting the L.A. area. And that brings us to one of the most infamous stories to ever come out of the former Cecil Hotel. In January of 2013, a 21-year-old college student from Canada named Elisa Lamb arrived in L.A. on part of what she called her West Coast tour. She had plans to visit several cities in California, staying for just a short while and then moving on to the next place. Her first stop was in San Diego, where she stayed for two days. Each day that she was on this trip, she spoke with her parents and updated them on her adventures, and she kept in touch with her family often due to their concerns about her traveling alone. On January 26, 2013, Elisa left San Diego and headed to her next destination, which was Los Angeles. As this wanderlusting college student, Elisa didn't have a ton of money, so she was looking for places to stay that, of course, were budget-friendly, and that's how she ended up booking a room at the Stay on Main, which is formerly known as the Cecil Hotel. She was going to stay five nights and check out on January 31st. Her trip to L.A. was going really well, and she continued speaking with her parents daily, But those calls stopped coming in on January 31st, and things got even more concerning when Elisa never showed up to the front desk to check out of her room. A few days later, Elisa's family alerted the LAPD that she was missing, and from there, a bizarre story that still has very little answers began to unfold. Investigators learned that Elisa was an active blogger who frequently blogged about her struggles with bipolar disorder, and in the days leading up to Elisa's disappearance, she had made some posts that indicated that she had lost her cell phone. Through speaking with hotel staff, police learned that Elisa had initially been given a shared room for her stay, but that the people she was sharing the room with complained that she was behaving oddly and Elisa was then moved to her own room. Is this the hostile part of it? Because I don't understand sharing a room with a stranger. In a hotel. I guess so, but isn't that what hostels yeah, do, right? Yeah, that's hot, but someone that stayed in a hostel explained this to me. I don't want to be in a stranger's room. That freaks me out. But that's why it's budget, and that's yeah. why 
I mean, I get I feel the like idea. There's actually there's a horror movie that's <laughs> yes, just there is. Hostel, and so I've seen part I, of it. Um, I'm already freaked out. Like by just when I hear the word, I'm like, oh, I just automatically would never stay somewhere that even had that. Like in the title of their yeah, place. I get it though. Some people, I think my sister and brother in law might have done that at one point, traveling just so they could stay in different places, and they stayed in them. And they're just kind of lucky people anyway. So it worked out really right. well for them. But to me, it's just the idea is so foreign to me because I'm such a like you know how I am I'm just terrified of everything so I don't really get it but it is interesting to me that that was something like that they were able to talk to those people and see that things were actually a little bit unusual at that point before anything even happened. Lisa was last reported being seen alive on January 31st by the hotel staff as well as the manager of a nearby bookstore who later told police that Elisa had come into the store and that she was very lively and very friendly and she was looking for gifts to take home to her family. Police searched Elisa's room and found no signs of foul play and everything appeared normal with Elisa's belongings left inside the room. The only thing that was missing was her cell phone. Unfortunately, not all of the surveillance cameras at the hotel were functional, but the hotel turned over the footage they had from the time Elisa checked in to the time she was last seen. The strangest thing was that as far as police could tell, Elisa had come into the hotel on January 31st, but there was no evidence that she ever left the hotel, leading them to believe that she must still be inside somewhere. But still, after a thorough search, nothing turned up. The last time Elisa was seen on any surveillance video at the hotel was on February 1st, and she was in an elevator on the floor where her room was. This video has been the cause of numerous conspiracy theories and just regular theories about what happened to Elisa. I don't know a lot about conspiracy theories, but I definitely know about this one. So if you know anything about this case, and you probably do, then you have seen this video, and really it's something... I've seen it and it freaks me out. It's really kind of bizarre. Me too. Yeah. And it's just because you know kind of – if you know anything about the story, you're like, oh my gosh, what's happened here? So you first see Elisa get onto the elevator and right away it's clear something's bothering her that she's not behaving in a normal fashion. And she pushes several buttons and then steps back into the corner of the elevator and then she just stands there for a moment. But the elevator door never closes. Elisa then steps up to the door opening, peeks her head out, looks both ways, and then quickly steps back inside the elevator and stands near the corner again. The elevator door still never closes. After a few more seconds, Elisa steps out of the elevator, back in, out again, and she's nearly out of view of the camera at this point because half of her body is kind of behind this wall, but you can clearly see her standing there making really strange arm and hand gestures, but there doesn't appear to be anyone else there with her. She does this for a while and even gets back in the elevator, pushes more buttons, and gets in and out again. Finally, you see Elisa exit the elevator and walk to the left, out of sight of the camera, and the elevator door closes. This is the last time Elisa is seen alive in the hotel, and nobody knows what really happened after she left the elevator. So I think that's one of the things about the video that is like so creepy for me is that the door doesn't ever shut when she's getting in and out because it does close after she walks off like in a time like in the amount of time that you would expect the elevator door to close. Right. But, you know, she was standing in the elevator like by herself, you know, for a while long enough for it to close and it never did. So I think that like those kind of things about the video are why people have like these conspiracy theories or yeah. like spooky spooky theories Clearly about it's what not happened functioning to her normally like the elevator right. itself seems to be off right so the police were even more puzzled about elisa's whereabouts after seeing this video and her disappearance remained a mystery for the next couple of weeks 
In mid-February, guests that were staying at the Cecil Hotel began to complain to the front desk that they were having problems with the water in their room. Some said the water pressure was very low, while others complained of a strange taste and odor in the water, and there were reports that the water was even coming out of the faucet discolored. In response to these complaints, hotel maintenance went to the rooftop water tank to investigate possible causes of the water problems. When the concrete lid to the tank was moved aside, the employee made a gruesome discovery. The nude body of Elisa Lamb was found floating in the water tank. Her clothing, which was the same clothing that she was seen wearing on the elevator surveillance, was floating in the tank with her. This shocking discovery certainly did not answer very many questions. Elisa's parents were notified of their daughter's tragic death, but investigators weren't able to tell them exactly what even happened to her. Although the mystery of where Elisa Lamb was had been figured out, there were now many more questions about exactly how she died. The main thing to note is that access to the hotel rooftop isn't exactly easy. The only way to get up there is by fire escape or if you have a key to the door, which only very few hotel workers had. I read there was a, some conflicting sources. Some said there was only one person at the hotel that had it. And then I read that there was also two or three. So I'm not really sure. But either way, it was not very many right. people at the hotel who would have had access to it. So, of course, the Internet really ran wild with theories about what they think happened to Elisa Lamb. Some wondered if Elisa had taken any drugs or whether her chronic depression and bipolar disorder caused her to take her own life. But the police really weren't even close to being convinced that that's what happened. For one thing, she was spotted earlier in the day that she went missing and she was buying gifts for her family. And she was in high spirits, according to the clerk that helped her that day. The police didn't feel that it sounded like somebody who was planning to end their own life later on that very same day. You know, she's doing things, buying gifts to take home to her family. So she obviously has plans beyond just, you know, that afternoon. The other big thing that pointed away from that theory was that Elisa was found in the water tank with the lid to the tank closed. So if she had moved the lid on her own and got into the tank on her own accord, she wouldn't have been able once she was in the water to put this concrete lid back on the tank, meaning that somebody else had to shut the heavy lid after she was in there. The next obvious theory was that Elisa was murdered and placed in the tank, but her autopsy didn't back that up. Her official cause of death was drowning, and there were no signs of trauma or sexual assault. Additionally, it would have been nearly impossible for Elisa to have been killed before being put in the tank because access to the lid required climbing up onto a platform and then onto a ladder. So if somebody killed her first, they would have to carry her body up there, which would be highly unlikely yeah. that somebody would be able to do. So it seemed that Elisa would have either had to climb up there on her own or have been forced to climb up there and then pushed in. However, even though not all of the cameras in the hotel worked, there really wasn't any footage of anyone suspicious that seemed like they would have been involved or had been on their way to or from the rooftop that day. The other theories about this case are, of course, more of the conspiracy variety. So there's people who believe in like paranormal stuff and that something evil was communicating with Elisa in the hotel and that this invisible presence drove her to climb up to the water tower and get in. Believers of this theory say the surveillance footage supports their belief and they feel that it's clear that Elisa was not truly alone on the elevator. 
They allege that her actions and movements indicate that she was hiding from something or someone and that she clearly looks like she is talking to and making hand gestures at somebody in the hallway that's out of view. They also allege that Elisa's arm movements seen on the footage are unnatural and that the only explanation is that some type of paranormal phenomenon occurred. The most plausible theory that has been presented about this case is that Elisa was suffering a severe manic episode complete with paranoia, delusions, and hallucinations. A toxicology report that was performed with her autopsy showed that Elisa had taken one form of antidepressant that day and she had traces of a second antidepressant and a mood stabilizer in her system, but they were not high enough levels for her to have taken them that day. So basically they're saying she's prescribed these medications, but she obviously was not taking them this day. Right. In total, Elisa was prescribed four different medications to treat her bipolar and depression, but from looking at the toxicology report, it appeared that she may not have been keeping up with those medications. There were no drugs or alcohol present in her system either, making the case all that more perplexing. The people of the internet took no time at all to notice the stark similarities between Elisa's death and the plot of the movie Dark Water. There are others who believe that Elisa was assassinated by something called the quote-unquote invisible light agency and mandy even said it's a theory she can't get into because it makes no sense so kudos to you mandy i don't even the name of it is weird enough for me so elisa's death was officially ruled an accidental drowning due to a manic episode but to this day experts and true crime lovers are still haunted by the story and we'll probably never really know what truly happened to elisa lamb all throughout the years at the cecil hotel and even when it became this stay on maine People have reported ghost sightings and strange occurrences in the building. It became a focus for crime and horror tours around the city. Four years after Elisa Lamb's body was discovered in the water tank, the building was officially designated as a Los Angeles landmark, and a New York-based developer began working with the owners to convert the hotel into a boutique hotel with units available for long-term rentals and apartment space. They started a $100 million renovation and hoped to fully rebrand and shake off the bad vibes of the Cecil. At the start of the project, the hotel closed its doors for business in 2017. However, it won't remain closed much longer. There's an article from around 13 months ago that said the project is set to be completed by October 2021. But of course, we have a little thing called the pandemic going on, so we don't know how that's affecting the progress. But the infamous hotel could reopen in as little as a year from now. There will be 299 (laughs) hotel rooms, no thank you, and 301 single room residences. Hopefully they have a better time with this reopening. But at what point do you just say like, just just burn it. Just, just burn get it down. Rid of it. Yeah. I know. Start over. <laughs> Take that $100 million. Let's put it somewhere else. That's cra- I would, you could not pay me. $100 I mean, million I don't know if they there. can. Yeah. No, I don't know if they can now that they've like declared that it's a landmark of the city because I'm pretty sure like the whole point of doing that is so that it's like now a protected yeah. space. Like I don't think they can actually just tear it down completely. But I don't know that I would keep it as a hotel. And I certainly don't think I would ever stay there I mean I would go there and like just take a picture but like I am not I would never stay there that's crazy no I I honestly if my route to work was that way I would reroute myself I wouldn't even go within like a three mile radius of this place I had no idea so much went on there but oh my gosh good thing Cecil Hotel is not sponsoring this episode because we would be doing a terrible job of selling it to people (laughs) but it's it's that's just too much. That is way too much for me. That's scarier than that 
crazy place you and I stayed at in Miami. Um, oh my gosh, I was going to ask you. Yes, I was going to ask if you remember that place because Mandy. that's totally what I I thought of. That place was so scary. It, but that's all I could see the whole time we were talking about this. If you've never heard us tell that story, we told it on Patreon, so it's it's on there from a couple years ago when we went, and it was this place that we found out after we stayed at that it was the second most haunted place in Miami. And the people that were there, I think, might have been more terrifying than the dead people's ghost, who I think could have been. I don't believe in ghosts, but that's a cl- as close as I came to believing in ghosts. I was like, I never <laughs> want to. I didn't want to leave the room, and I also didn't want to go into the room. There was just like both. I didn't want to be anywhere. I wanted to. Yeah, it was just not. It was. I will never forget that. I can't even believe you said. Dude, yeah. I was wondering if you thought about that. I think about it every night before I go to sleep. <laughs> I'll never yeah, know. I know. I and I do love spooky stuff and, and stuff. You know, it's all fun and games. But as far as like staying in a hotel that has that much going on and in its history, I just don't think that's not really for me. That's a little over. Well, the we already did me, it. So. You've already done it. So you can cross it off your list because the one we stayed at yeah. was like Al Capone. They said Al Capone's ghosts live there and all kinds of insane things that like afterwards, the next morning, literally, as we were walking out, people were like, oh, you didn't know this place was haunted. And I was like, excuse me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that was too much. <laughs> So we're going to turn the page and do our last thing before we go. Melissa, you came up with last thing before we go. I like whenever you say that because if it's a failure, it's totally on me. It's no, 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 no. No, I'm just I'm just saying that I'm handing over the reins to you now. So so you can do do your thing. So I don't watch scary movies, although I did apparently see part of Hostel and I've seen a couple I somehow watched, is a human centipede considered a terrifying movie? Because I watched like five Um, minutes of it and I wanted to just never, it was like being back in that terrifying hotel. I didn't know what I was watching. I did not know what it meant, first of all. I had no idea. is that the one where they like sew them? Yes. I had no idea what it meant. (laughs) I don't remember who told me to watch it, but then afterwards they were like, I can't believe you tried to watch it. So, um... Yeah, that's that's on me. That's on me. So, Mandy, I think I've just been told about that one, but I've never actually. Um, I'm such an idiot. Tried to watch. Don't, it. don't. It's no. I, I would rather not. Yeah, no. I mean, if you even have an idea of what it's about, just skip it. It, it makes you question a lot of things in your life, especially like who are you friends with that they would suggest this movie to you. I'm gonna give Mandy since Mandy knows this world better of creepy uh, or scary Halloweenish movies. I picked a few quotes and I'm gonna give her the quotes and see if she can guess what movie they're from. So I just picked a few. A couple might be kind of easy. I don't know. But um, we'll see where it goes. So Mandy, first one is, every town has an Elm Street. What movie would that be from? Wait. Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> yeah, it's one of them. It's like, I was going to give it to you no matter what. It was Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, 1991 by Freddy Krueger. He's the one that said it. So oh, yeah. I'll give it to you. Yeah. yeah. I mean... I mean, I am a I, I like scary movies, but come on now, Melissa. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm like, I need the year. I need to know the producer. Yeah. I need to know what they were wearing when they said this. No. Um. Okay. So the next one is Sid. Don't blame the movies. The movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Sid. It's one of this movie ruined a lot of my childhood. And it was not Human Centipede. It was one that made me terrified to go outside of my house because it was woodsy where we lived when I was growing up. 
It's a very popular um, one. Drew Barrymore's in it. I don't know. Drew Barrymore's in it. Very popular. No. If I said shout, <laughs> what's the other word for shout? Scream. Yeah, scream. Yeah. Oh my gosh! You know, I always get scream confused with the one that's the fake um, one, not scream. Yes. Oh yeah, <laughs> scary movie <laughs> with Anna Faris. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so I've got two more for you, real quick. So, a boy's best friend is his mother. Oh, that's creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, the person that said it was no. Oh, go ahead. It this reminds me of that movie, Mommy Dearest. That's probably not it, oh, but no. um. Have you heard? Have you seen that? That's a terrible movie. Oh yeah, too. no more wire hangers ever. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I said that. All the no, time. who? This was What's Norman Bates. Sound familiar? From Psycho. Oh. Eep, 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 eep. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and my last one, Mandy. Let's see if you can get this. This is truly the most terrifying movie I've ever seen. The quote is: "If you're a bird, I'm a bird." Oh my gosh, scariest movie ever, The Notebook. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that movie so much. That's it. Yeah, the one you got was <laughs> the most scary. Good job. <laughs> That's so funny. It's not that bad, but I mean, it's, it, it is. It you're, is that if bad. you're a bird, I'm a bird. What does that mean? Do you, are you becoming birds? Just, are you bird people now? It's about love. It's about love, Melissa, and being. With your partner and just being the same thing they are. Okay, let's be, if you're a human, I'm a human. That's love too. <laughs> we don't have to change species for this. It's insane. Okay, yeah. Oh, Maybe human species centipedes worse, but barely. Well, those were fun. Those were Good. really fun. Yeah, so I hope everybody enjoyed this episode this week. Um, this one was definitely different and yeah. a lot of fun for me and I think Melissa maybe even learned a thing or two about the Cecil Hotel she would never Melissa you would never look into this on your own accord so I feel never. like I just forced you to learn about this creepy hotel yeah thank you so much I really appreciate it and <laughs> I'm sure I will now be sleep thinking about the hotel we stayed in and now this one so double nightmares for me thank you yeah, you're never going to stay in a hotel again. <laughs> never. <after> <laughs> All right. Well, I hope everybody has a fantastic and safe Halloween, however that looks and however you're celebrating it this year, um, and that you get your favorite candy. Now, Melissa put milk duds in my head, so I'm now looking forward to having milk duds uh, soon no. this weekend. That'll be Those will be the first things I pick out of my kids' um, oh. candy. candy <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, guys. Have a great week we will see you next week same time same place new story have a great week bye thanks so much for listening to the moms and murder podcast make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode you can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime thanks so much <laughs>